not a hope for rescue nor to be saved from pain, but a hope that through wounding remains, sustained by a joy that I am where I am. Suffering is a journey. I will sing in the rain and dance in the pain to love and be loved when I shall weep. That is a poem that I wrote uh, almost three years ago. And it's a poem that is uh, entirely about suffering and embracing your suffering. So I thought it was apt because tonight as we enter into Holy Week, I thought it would be prudent to, to contemplate the cross and the crucified Christ. We shouldn't eagerly rush into the, the victory of the resurrection before resting in the pain and the suffering of the crucifixion. See, the cross, well, the cross, it was, it was a, an instrument of excruciating death, but it was where Jesus suffered and died. We should really get our heads around that he truly suffered on the cross. It's one of the oldest heresies in the book to think that Jesus did not suffer, that he was kind of faking it. Because he was God, he didn't really need to suffer. He just needed to die, that his blood was good enough. But no, his suffering was real. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are not the cries of a man who has not deeply suffered. It is a lament of one who has known profound suffering. Let's let's look at Psalm 22. Uh, it's where this phrase originates from. Listen to the, the heart of David here. If I can get to the right page. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? It's because it is. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel, and you put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and you were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. There's a lot more to it. It gets a little more redemptive in the end. But that first part, can you feel the pain of David? Can you feel the pain of, of Jesus on the cross? It's profound suffering. I am a worm, not a man. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? These are the same cries of the poor and of the oppressed. So many have, have cried out to God for help, for, for rescue, for, for some semblance of, of hope. But it has so often been for naught. See, children have, have died from hunger. Men and women have have died in the midst of the powerful waging their wars. Little boys and girls sold into slavery by their parents because it is too expensive to keep them in the home without doing so. My God, my God, why have you abandoned them? 
So many have believed for hope. But can you feel the pain of these children, of these, these men and women who have cried out for help from God but have died from hunger anyway? It's painful. This is the pain that Jesus entered into on the cross. It was the, it was the pain of, of countless lives bereft of their innocence because of the transgression of someone else. So many have believed. So many have felt forsaken by God. Why did you let my child die in school? Why did you let my mother die of cancer? This pain is real. This is the suffering of the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus reveals his absolute intimacy with human suffering. It's not a, a plea of God who is out there, nor is God who is, who is with us. See, on the cross, there is this meshing of, of God and pain. See, Jesus' lament was not a plea to a God who existed outside of himself. It was a, it was a plea of one who was, who was the very image of the invisible God who was resting in human pain. The nails in his wrists, in his feet, the spear wound in his side, those are all the cries of the oppressed, and of those who suffer. Jesus has long, had, has long been associating himself with human suffering. As a tecton, it's what he was referred to in the scriptures. A tecton is most often translated as carpenter, but that's kind of a poor translation because when you think of carpenter, you think of a middle-class, self-sufficient working dude, right? So you think of a carpenter. That's not exactly the translation that it should have been. At the time, the tech time was more of a day laborer. So picture someone standing outside of Home Depot uh, waiting for a day's wage. That was the profession of Jesus. It wasn't a middle-class working professional. It was a dude trying to get by, hopefully, for some bread for that day. And then he was from Nazareth. There's not really a lot known about Nazareth from the time, uh, but scholars speculate that Nazareth was a, uh, it was on the Sea of Galilee. It was probably primarily populated by lower class individuals, probably a lot of tectons who did uh, work up and down the Sea of Galilee. So as a tecton from Nazareth, he knew what it was to be poor and despised by his own people. Can anything good? Come from Nazareth? Really anything good? Those tectons? Those poor people? What can they offer me? I'm in Jerusalem, yo. And then as a part of a people who, uh, who were oppressed by a Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, the most powerful military force on the planet at the time, he knew what it was to not only be poor, to be despised by his people, to be but to be despised by the emperor himself and the people who had occupied his land. Man, Jesus knew what it was to be oppressed. Jesus knew pain. He felt it deeply. Even in his teaching, Jesus reveals that he himself is revealed in the poor. So if you want to go ahead and turn into Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to read one of his parables, and it's a longer one. And so if you want to follow along with me, it's Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Again, that's Matthew, Matthew 25, 
31, going through verse 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will be and he will separate the people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? I don't know why he had to repeat the whole thing, but he did. Good. The king will reply, I will tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison or did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Ooh. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Mm. See, it's the poor and the powerless who, who reveal the Christ most acutely. Thus it's the poor and the powerless who, who know the Christ most acutely. They are fully aware of him. And then it's in our own pain that we find Christ. Simply look at your own life. I mean, one of the times, when are the times that you've come to know the divine the most acutely? Has it been on the mountaintops and in the the victories? Or has it been in the pain and the suffering? When you couldn't get out of bed because you didn't know that you could face the day, when there was nothing but pain inside of your heart and you felt abandoned by God, forsaken by God. See, it's those times, at least for me, that I have found God. I know God is in it all. He's in the victories and he's in the pain. I get it. But man, suffering, unlike anything else, seems to be the place where God meets me the most. It's where beauty comes out of the pain. It's where the best music comes from, it's where the best poetry comes from, the best art. My artists are some of the most tormented people, but they make the most beautiful things. See, it's pain that reveals God. It reveals the divine. Man, the, the mountaintop has its own glory, but it is the valley that teems with life. Let me say that again. The the mountaintop has its own glory, but it is the valley that teems with life. My God, my God, you have 
You joined me in my forsakenness, in our forsakenness. What love, what grace, what light. To think that the infinite would embrace the finite and then choose to suffer with us, that's beyond comprehension. Even after the resurrection, Jesus embraces his wounds. He doesn't come out of the grave all whole and perfect. No, those holes are still there in his wrists, the spirit wound on his side. He does not come out perfect. He comes out as a crucified God. And then he goes to Thomas. Thomas like, man, prove to me you're Jesus, bro. Look at this wound. Come into my side. I know you doubt. But here's how I treat doubters. Come into me. Embrace the most intimate place in my life. Enter your hand into my side, into the holes in my wrists. And you will find life. Come on, there is there is pain, but there is victory in the pain. See, the cross was, was not just a prologue for the resurrection. It was the catalyst of the resurrection. See, the resurrection isn't the, it's good and it's beautiful. I'm not trying to denigrate the resurrection. Please don't hear that. I'm saying the cross is beautiful because that's where Jesus embraces our own pain and the pain of the world, the pain of the poor, and to be oppressed. And he's in it all. His blood is there. He's good. And it hurts. I know it hurts. I don't know what you're going through, but man, Jesus is there. I want to pause here before we get to the next parts. I want to change what you guys feel and what you guys think how you are reacting to this. This isn't a normal crucifixion mission. It's not Jesus died for you and you've been saved. It's great. Cool. Awesome. This is a different lens. So please respond. This is not a rhetorical question. Should be tough. It's not easy. You shouldn't laugh off human trafficking or whatever else. It's not going to be taken lightly. Yeah. And there's no way. I don't think there are answers for it. I don't think you can go to a family who just lost their child in a school shooting and say, "Hey, Jesus loves you." It feels kind of trite, right? It's it's true. Jesus does love them. 
but maybe we should just cry with them for a little bit, right? We should just sit with them and mourn and let that be it. We don't need to rush the resurrection part. We can, we can rest on the cross. That's how the cross should feel. I mean, we've looked back at this this event for two thousand years, and we've we've treated it with with doctrinal ideas and some conceptual understanding of it. Probably the cross should be a happy event. We call it Good Friday, I guess, but the cross hurts, and it should hurt. My God, my God, why have you? forsaken me. Why Jesus cried and, and sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't like, oh, it's just the cross. Yeah. Huh? Scooby doo. <laughs> no, it hurts. Our own crosses hurt. Jesus tells us to carry our cross and to die. Doesn't mean to tattoo it on yourself or to to wear a cross chain around your necklace or bracelet. Oh, so embrace your own suffering. Paul talks about it all the time in, in his epistles. Anybody else? I don't know how to respond to that, but it's good. <laughs> Anybody else? He's with us in our pain. Hmm. All right, let's go to the one. So the the incarnate Christ, he he jumped fully into the the life of the the poor and of the oppressed. Like I said, he was a tecton from Nazareth under the they were the Roman Empire. He was occupied by them. He he knew what it was to be oppressed and marginalized. That was that was his people. That was who he called to follow him. Hey. Are you a scumbag? Okay, cool. Come follow me. Like, I don't want the, the rich dudes. I want you to leave everything you have, actually, and come follow me. The poor and the oppressed were, were his people. And I don't think 
Jesus was playing when he said that whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. I think it's the, the role of the church to likewise jump into the life of the poor and of the oppressed and to advocate for those on the fringes of society. And whatever you do for the least of these, you literally do for me. I don't, not everything in the Bible is literal, and this may not be literal, but man, I think it's more beautiful to take it literal. Like, ooh, do what you do for the poor is what you do for Christ himself. We have to get rid of this idea that that Jesus only exists out, out there somewhere. That he's some, something to, be, to be believed or be a, is a concept. And we have to, to bring him home a little bit. We have to open up our eyes and shed the scales from our eyes to actually see the person of Jesus. Too often I witness our, our spirituality being reserved um, to, to something to be believed or within our, our own heads. That we need to, as a church, come to some sort of conceptual alignment so we can be a part of the body. We can do the work of God when we can use our brains to think correctly. Man, Jesus is, he's here. Like, he's hes in us and he's in the poor and the oppressed. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think you should, you should stop praying or stop believing. I believe is good. Belief is is what directly impacts how you act. They're they're intimately connected. But what I am saying is that spirituality and theology is limited until it becomes embodied in our neighbor, until we can see Christ embodied in the faces of our neighbors, in the faces of the oppressed, even in the faces of our enemies. What up, Isis? I can see Christ in you. I I don't, honestly, not yet. I heard some still doing some inner turmoil here. But I know, I, I know God's there. Until our spirituality becomes embodied, I believe it's very limited. Let me read you a quote by Gustavo Gutierrez. He was a South American theologian who worked among the poor and the oppressed. Theological reflection takes on its full meaning only within the church and in the service of the life of the church and its action in the world. To be followers of Jesus requires that they walk with and be committed to the poor. When they do, they experience an encounter with the Lord who is simultaneously revealed and hidden in the faces of the poor. The Catholic Church refers to this kind of spirituality as the as the preferential option for the poor. This isn't a spirituality that also includes working for the oppressed, the marginalized, and the poor, but rather it's the, the commitment to the oppressed and the poor and the marginalized is the primary work of the church. It's not a subset. It's not like we first come to the service and then we go out. Well, it's rather we go out and then we sometimes come to church because it's good and it's beautiful. See, it's a preferential option for the poor. We begin with our work and service for the poor and then we can do everything else. It's the primary work. Too often, though, we, we, we get this backwards. Uh, you know, either we operate with a spirituality that is first and foremost concerned with ourselves or our status, or it's trying to gain status, notoriety, power, and influence. Too often, we begin with that. But if our primary concern is gaining power, either spiritually or societally, we have left the path of Christ. 
Jesus is so often scoffed at gain and influence himself, and he mocked the power structures of this day. It's veiled within the in the scriptural text, but oh, he is he mocks the power. He mocks Rome. He mocks the Jewish elites. Historically, the church has committed its greatest crimes against humanity when it has partnered with power, primarily political power. Uh, think of the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, uh, slavery, uh, manifest destiny. All atrocities committed by the church. And there's countless other things that the church has done over the last 2,000 years that have oppressed others. Either these, these things that they do, like the Crusades, uh, we initiate them, or there's some things that we perpetuate, like slavery. We, we justify these things because it's convenient. And for the first 300 years of Christianity, we were the poor and the oppressed. We, we, we were the ones who were on the margins of society, being hunted down by the Roman Empire, to be thrown into the Colosseans, to, to, to fight lions, like that, that was us. And then in a moment of, of profound inspiration, they partnered with Constantine. Often with good intentions, these things happen. They, they, they come from a place where we believe that we can do good. Man, if we partner with Constantine, you know how much good we can do? And we can spread the gospel of Christ throughout the entire Roman Empire without being impeded, which is good and it's beautiful. But... Every time, without fail, the church has partnered with power, it has inevitably become the oppressor. I've studied history. Uh, it has never gone well. If history proves us anything, as it cycles around and around, it will never go well. Uh, let that be a, a warning to the state of evangelical Christianity today. See, God has, has always been on the side of the oppressed. The entirety of the scriptures were written from those who uh, were intimately aware of what oppression looked like. From the beginning to the end, they were an oppressed and marginalized people group. The church, though, has always been its finest when it partners with and is committed to the liberation of the poor. The church errs when it separates theology from an ethic that is by and for the oppressed. When we are first concerned with our own status, and we forget our work for the poor, we have left the path of Christ. James Cone, who is a, uh, who is a black theologian in the middle of the civil rights movement, uh, he, he wrote this. Theologians of the Christian church have not interpreted Christian ethics as an act for the liberation of the oppressed because their views of divine revelation were defined by philosophy and other cultural values rather than by the biblical theme of God as liberator of the oppressed. And he writes later, For according to scripture, it is the divine event of liberation in the lives of the oppressed that makes covenant obedience possible. To live as a Christian simply means being what God has made us, namely liberated creatures committed to the freedom of humanity. So before Christians hit the scene, there there was the, the Jews, the the people of God, their defining event was the Exodus. It wasn't Abraham, even though that was important. It wasn't anybody else. It wasn't Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. No, it was Moses. 
That was the defining event of Jewish thought and belief. And in the Exodus, God partners with the oppressed and the marginalized and sets them free and seeks their liberation. See, that was their entire ethic. That's, that, that was their lens that they peered through for the, their, the entirety of their beliefs. And so when, when Jesus hits the scene, that was his lens as well. That liberation was his first and foremost concern. Liberation of the oppressed and the marginalized. The crucified God demands that we act by and for the oppressed. To truly follow Jesus and to call ourselves Christians, we must be committed to the plight of those who suffer, of those who have been oppressed, oppressed, not oppressed, oppressed by an unjust system, and of those who feel that they have been forsaken and abandoned by God. To my God, my God, we are forsaken, but we are partners in your efforts towards liberation. This is part of the message of the crucifixion, not just that we have been saved by an act of of divine grace, but that Jesus ultimately chooses pain and suffering and chooses to side with the poor and the oppressed. That's a part of the crucifixion. We can't just limit it to our own personal salvation. It's about the salvation of all of us, and not just eternal salvation, but salvation here and now. Come on. Like, we are so concerned about our going to heaven. But the entirety of the scriptures, and for the vast majority of church history, we are primarily concerned with the liberation of all humanity. Until we hit that point, we have limited the gospel of Christ. The gospel is not just something to be believed, it is something to be lived, and we are to act by and for the poor and the oppressed and those who suffer. When we suffer, that is our primary audience, is our pain and their pain. God is ultimately on the side of the poor and the oppressed. The Christ is a, is a suffering Christ. He maintains his wounds now. Jesus is the the lamb that that suffers with us, and he is the lion that fights for us. Come on, he is the lamb that suffers with us, and he is the lion that fights for us, and he will not stop until justice is known throughout all the lands. A couple more scriptures here, some prophets from the, the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, from Micah, you have been told, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, only to do justice and to love goodness and to walk humbly with your God. And the prophet Amos, rather let justice surge like waters and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Man, the Grand Canyon was, was formed by a river cutting through it, and that is the justice of God. His justice will not end until we are the Grand Canyon, until anybody has, who has seen us, and like, man, the glory of God is there. Have you ever seen the Grand Canyon? Ooh! The only time that I, that's the sight that I've been most awed by. I mean, Pikes Peak is, is cool. Going west is, is pretty cool. The Grand Canyon, oh my goodness. It is something else. That's how justice works. It will flow 
like an unfailing stream. It will carve out the Grand Canyon of beauty and of liberation on the earth today. The God who is author of all will not rest until the suffering are uplifted and made whole. The crucified God is firmly on the side of the oppressed. So may the unstoppable river of justice flow through the earth and heal this broken land. And may we be the partners of the crucified Christ on the earth.